Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. In this episode, I talk with Bernard George about empowering teams to work interdependently in highly cross-functional organizations. And in the case of Mr. George, that's for mission assurance when sending payloads up into space. Just a note of correction, at about the six-minute mark, Bernard mentions that Ball Corporation has 80,000 people. The actual number? is about 22,000. Welcome to The Indispensables. I'm Bruce Tolgan, and I am thrilled to welcome Bernard George. Bernard has spent 20 years in aerospace working small to large software programs as a software developer, configuration manager, tester, and quality engineer, currently working for Ball Aerospace as a mission assurance manager for space flight payloads. Bernard George, welcome to The Indispensables. Thank you very much for having me, Bruce. Well, I'm delighted to have you. And tell us a little bit, what is that? What's a space flight payload? So anything that goes up into space has a couple of major components. And one major component is the space flight bus for any kind of satellite. And what the bus is, is that's the biggest component that actually houses all of the different payloads and what I do currently is I'm the mission insurance manager for a, a particular payload system that Ball is uh, in the works right now. Gotcha. So, uh, so it's not. It's only been a few weeks since um, uh, the rover landed on Mars, right? Is it? Is it yeah. uh, perseverance? So it must be kind of big, big, big times in your in your uh, industry. Absolutely. There were a lot of engineers that were actually watching that uh, landing um, from their desks. So it was it was a really cool thing to see. And you've never been to Mars. Oh, absolutely not. No. Um, <laughs> however, in the industry, it's kind of interesting. I do have contacts with the uh, I think I'm one off from one of the people that have been currently in the running to be one of the first people on Mars. Is that right? And so, so is that would you do that? Me personally, no. <laughs> All right. That would be that would be way too far of a stretch. But you know, there are always those people that are out there that are going, yeah, I would like to be one of those people that charts new uh, new avenues and new horizons, and uh, good for them. Yeah. Well, I'd be too scared to go to Mars. <laughs> I'd be too scared to just go up in space. <laughs> and here, uh, but here, you're doing such important work in support of those missions. So. How does somebody get to be you? How did you, what's your story? How did you get to where you are? So, you know, going back 20 years now, and I can say that I'm getting kind of up there in age, but uh, it's been a long journey. And one of the things is you start out with a very good uh, technical background. My background is in computer science and electrical engineering, uh, graduated from Texas Tech, go Red Raiders, guns up. Uh, it's just been a long career where you just go and you you navigate through the industry, and it's a big industry. There's a lot of th different things you could do. But I focus mainly on software and software satellite systems, and you just learn the business, and you learn how uh, these systems operate. Um, I've worked on small systems, big systems, 
um, worked with users, worked with uh, many, many different smart people all, all across my career. And you just you just keep going and you just keep learning and it's always changing. Software is one of those areas where in 20 years, the, the, the act of writing software and software processes hadn't changed all that much. But what has changed in what in this industry does is it, it constantly evolves and you have to keep up with the technology. Software delivery has changed much over the last um, 15, 20 years because of the internet and delivery systems. So you always constantly have to keep on your toes and looking for the new technology and um, always trying to build your skill set. How important is mission to the work that you do? I mean, obviously, space flight payloads, that sounds mission driven. It sounds very important. Yes. And in my industry, one of the things that um, as a as a technology contractor, you you sometimes get a bought into your customer's mission as well. Um, for instance, you know, NASA, right? NASA is one of our uh, major customers and we build um, a lot of things, you know, Hubble, um, Kepler, a lot of those big um, telescopes out there in the sky. And you you get wrapped into their mission as at the same time you as your company um, have your own company mission. So those kind of get intertwined and it's exciting to see when those actually come to fruition and you get to build these great systems like the Hubble and the next generation. Um, that's the uh, James Webb Space Telescope and uh, the new one that's in uh, development right now, Nancy Roman uh, Space Telescope. So getting wrapped up in your customer's mission is is about the same importance as your own company mission when you're doing these things. Yeah, and of course, uh, if in your position, uh, because Ball Aerospace must be, well, how, how large an organization is Ball? Company-wide, Ball Corporation um, is, I believe, in the um, 80,000 person um, organizations. However, Ball Corporation is uh, categorized as a uh, packaging and consumer goods company. And that is because 90% uh, of the company is uh, focused on aluminum and consumer packaging and uh, containers. Um, Ball Aerospace is only 10% of the company. So that's something that a whole lot of people out there really don't uh, necessarily know both parts of the business is growing and it's we're doing very well as a corporation yeah i'm i'm asking just because i know that uh as a contractor um and as an engineer working in a large complex organization i'm guessing ball itself uh, is organized in a matrix uh style management where uh maybe you have project managers and also functional managers and you've got people coming to you from up down sideways and diagonal you have to rely on your own colleagues sometimes without clear lines of authority and then uh, you also have to manage the whole interface with clients as large as nasa or the department of defense or uh, whoever else you're working with so I'm fond of saying how proud we are that here at Rainmaker Thinking, my number one client over the last 27 years has been the United States Armed Forces and the intelligence community. And I always talk about my own commitment to their mission. But my firm is a small consulting firm in an office that fits on one floor of a building. I mean, so we don't have to navigate so much the complexity of our own organization, whereas um, uh, somebody in your position and so many people I've worked with, whether it's at 
Northrop Grumman or Raytheon or Lockheed Martin. It's it's a complex uh, set of relationships for you to navigate every day. I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the one of the good things about it is with these companies, they actually have um, organizational structures that make sense. You talked about the the functional managers and the matrix organizations. The companies that actually do that well um, really have a good a low turnover rate, and they're able to keep their people very much connected. And information flow is very done very well. You have managers that are very good at you know people leadership, and it gets uh, permeated through the whole organization. What's interesting in these large organizations too is when you're on a particular program, the programs themselves are actually pretty well structured in that they're an organization within a big organization within a big organization. So you have these levels of hierarchy that are just all over the place. I can remember when I was learning as a, as a young engineer that you know my boss told me, he goes, when you raise up in the ranks, you're going to have multiple bosses and you're going to have to be able to manage those multiple bosses as you go up. And as you do that, you're going to continue to mature and figure out the people leadership aspect is a lot more than what you do as a technical person. So, you know, keeping those lessons in mind and just learning the different types of organizations is is very important to be able to navigate your career and also to be productive. Because if you can't get help from other people and you're just stuck in the middle of a, a not very well working personal organization, it's uh, it's tough to get things done. Yeah, and uh, of course you hear uh, some people talk about how the matrixed organization is driving them crazy. On the other hand, as you point out, savvy people in well-run organizations talk about, wow, we're able to push information exchange up and down the chain of command, sideways and diagonal, so much more quickly and effectively. We're able to make decisions better. We're able to share resources better. We're able to speed up execution, and that's the magic of collaboration, cross-functional cooperation, and that's, I think, why large complex organizations are moving toward this highly collaborative, highly interdependent structures. But, you know, a lot of people struggle in that environment. It requires a lot of relationship savvy. Absolutely. One of the things that I'm doing a little bit later on today is I'm having a team meeting with uh, my current team, and these people work directly for me on a program, and I am the, I guess, the team leader for this organization, but none of them directly report to me as a boss-employee relationship. They are team members, and they work on multiple different programs doing the same uh, work, but they have to be able to rationalize the work that they're doing for my program. It may be a little bit different flavor. They may have a di little different piece of requirement for another program, but they're doing the same thing. And the communication involved in that gets quite difficult. So what I have to do is I kind of have to step back and make sure that I'm communicating what my program needs and what the current tasking is for this team so that they have clear communication, clear tasking, and uh, a really good deadline to be able to make sure that they're able to manage their work on their own and to be able to juggle it with all the other programs because they're getting the same directions from different program leads on different programs. Right. And how, how do you make sure that you are able to 
navigate the competing priorities or help those on your team if they're reporting to multiple project leaders how do they navigate the competing priorities on the different projects or how do you help them do that so what i do is i ask them and i ask them if they have um, other competing priorities if their timelines and other programs will be in conflict and what we can do to actually work around those there, there have been times where the work that I needed to get done on a certain piece of my program was um, inhibited by another program that had a higher priority. Okay, that's great. As long as those things are communicated up and everybody is knowledgeable about those, then you're able to make the decisions and to make those priority decisions based on programs. If there's ever a situation where the two competing priorities are in conflict, what we have is a resolution uh, process where I will talk to other program managers and other uh, parts of the organizations. And we'll do some trading and say, okay, you know, your high priority was this week. Let's work on it next week because I have a bigger deadline that's coming up in a couple of weeks. So I'm going to need the resources. We're going to have to work something out. And we don't want to make our employees uh, go crazy by, you know, working them to death. So what we do is we try to make sure that everybody is capable and the resources that we have it works for everybody. Yeah, because I've got to think that in that environment where organizations are trying to be lean and flexible, they're trying to uh, continually increase productivity and quality and innovation, they're trying to get more and more out of every person. If you're not communicating clearly at your level, at, at a senior level, and then driving that clarity down the chain of command, it can put people in a tough spot where they've got you know three days worth of work to do every day. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that you don't want to do as a as an organization. You know, when you when you pile on the work and make everything important and then the performance starts to drop and you see that almost immediately when somebody is overloaded. So what I try to do in my organization is try to make sure that I'm aware of all of their workload and to be able to balance that with what I have coming up for my program, but also to be aware of the other programs that are taking their time. Because you never know when an issue is going to come up on another program where they're going to have to jump off. But as soon as they notify me of that, I am well aware of what's going on. And I know from a company perspective what the priorities are. And I'm able to adjust and make, uh, make sure that we have uh, contingency plans in place for whenever these situations arise. Yeah, does it ever occur that they have to choose one project or another, one program or, or another? Because... Uh... Their time is in so much demand and there's just not enough of it. And does that happen sometimes? Oh, absolutely. All the time. But uh, the work is always going to be there and we still have to perform the work. It's just going to be a matter of, you know, who's who has the time, who has the resources, who has the ability uh, to be able to perform the work at the right time. And sometimes, you know, things get slipped off a week or two, depending on priorities. But usually it's not any more than that major happenings on the program are usually at a higher level than me and affect the program as a whole. So down in my level, there's at least a week or two, probably at most a month that we can rearrange things and get resources where they need to go. And uh, how did you learn to navigate these uh, complex relationships? As a, as a technical person, and I always complain about this because in, in, in school, they don't teach you about the people aspect of work. They in the in the technical areas, they teach you the technical aspect. You kind of learn this as you go along. One of the cool things that I've been trying to do over the last you know five to ten years is 
really learn the people aspect, you know, management techniques, influence, performance, and just being able to be a good communicator is one of the, the foundations of that. Because if you can't communicate well, then you're not going to get very high in the management rates. The other piece of that is um, what uh, one of my colleagues calls the six degrees of communication. And what he describes it as up, down, side to side, forward and backward. You're always communicating with everybody up the chain, um, everybody down the chain on your team, across to the other IPT leads across the program, and front and back so that you're looking at the past, and then, but you're also looking forward into the future. Those are the kind of things that I keep in mind anytime that you're, you're managing a group of people, you're needing to get a lot of work done, and you're really stretching them for you know, getting the most performances you can out of them always work on celebrating your people, you know, giving them the thank yous, giving them the pats on the back, you know, telling them good job. You know, those are the kind of things that really help out when, you know, you're really overloaded at work, you're under a lot of pressure, you have a lot of deadlines you're coming up to. It's always good to make sure that you're telling your people and reassuring them that you're doing the right thing. You're doing great. This is excellent work. Keep it up. And then also give them, you know, coaching tidbits along the way. It's always really good to help people um, understand a current situation that they may not have enough experience in or uh, doing something brand new. I have one engineer that we have, he's called a reliability engineer. And what reliability engineers do is they ensure that the spacecraft components and parts will be reliable enough for your uh, mission life. And he got a, a task for um, a brand new report that he has never done before. And he is fairly new in the industry, but coming up on things like this, what I try to do is I try to help and I try to guide as much as I can. So what, what I try to do is give them the, the right information as much as I can, because I'm a software guy, I'm not a reliability guy, and try to give them some guide rails to go on. So what I did to help him out was I gave him a timeline and I said, okay, here's what we're going to try to do. Let's go ahead and try to get a draft of this done within three months. This will allow you plenty of time to work on it in between all your other priorities. Uh, let's get a good review by some uh, subject matter experts um, at that time. We'll go through a review process and then we'll refine it and then we'll get it done over the course of six months. And just being able to lay that out and help them, at least with the time frame, gives them a little bit of a peace of mind that says, okay, I've got time to work on this. I know what, what the end date is, know what the end needs are. And we just have little checkpoints along the way to make sure that they're doing the right thing. Yeah, I mean, so much of leading people, even as you say, in an area where you're not the subject matter expert, but so much of leading people and setting them up for success is um, helping them walk through a planning process and helping them plan not just to the end goal, but to intermediate benchmarks where they still have plenty of time to troubleshoot and problem solve and bring in uh, additional help if the mission is in jeopardy. Yes, absolutely. And as long as you're being able to provide those guidelines, they're a little bit more in tune to you know, come to you with uh, different questions and um, ask for advice and make sure that you know, they're, they're wanting to perform the work as well as they possibly can. But, you know, if on the flip side, you're not doing those things and then the deadline comes up and you sit back and go, hey, what happened? And then you expect them to fully do the work without you giving them any guidance. Well, that's 
probably not the best way to do it. Yeah, I mean, that's like just letting them know at the end when they've failed uh, rather than lifting them up and setting them up for success and uh, providing guidance, direction and support and coaching along the way. That's like night and day. And as you say, how does somebody whose uh, task, responsibility or project is not even in your area of expertise, how do they come to rely on you for that guidance? Um, it's through experience. It's when you take the time up front to have the kinds of conversations with them from which they benefit, where they realize, wow, you know, Bernard really helped me plan this out. And as I look forward and back, I love the fifth and sixth dimensions, by the way, uh, as I yeah. look up forward and back, um, I can see that, wow, it's it's a good idea to go talk to Bernard George, you know, because he's going to help set me up. And he and also that way you're aware in more granular detail of what they're doing. So should something come up on your other project or should something come up that gets in the way of their uh, accomplishing their intermediate goals? You're much more read in. You know what's going on. You're in a much better position to help them track their progress, and you're in a much better position uh, to help them course correct if necessary. Yeah, absolutely. And the best bosses that I've ever had were the ones that you know gave me enough leash, so to speak, in order to go out and do the work and figure out things on my own, and was was there to back me up and maybe even to you know suggest some improvements along the way. Uh, one story I can remember back is when I was a, uh, a young configuration manager, I was having to deliver software to a site because, you know, back then we didn't have uh, regular connections. I had to make a tape and I had to put the software baseline on a tape and then I had to take it to our delivery service that would only deliver once a day. It was eight o'clock in the morning and I would get the tape at the customer site day later and it would take me a day uh, just to get the uh, the the software unpackaged and built and installed. And I went into my boss one day and I said, hey, this is taking way too long. I probably need to do something different. And he goes, okay, we'll figure it out. And I just kind of paused and was like, well, okay, well, what do I do? Uh, we'll go talk to security, see if there's a different way to do the, uh, uh, the transfer. And okay, great. So long story short, what finally happened was in the process of discovering the process, I took a process that took about three days to accomplish, and I worked it down by improving it and uh, figuring out different ways to do things, and I, I whittled it down to about three hours. The boss was cognizant enough to be able to say, yeah, there is a different way to do it, but you should probably go out and figure it out. And through that process, it was, hey, learn the process, figure out different ways to do it, make it more efficient, and make it work for our needs. So that's kind of what I try to do in my role now, where I'm not necessarily the the right guy to be talking about reliability. Yeah, and I'm a software guy, and the the reliability engineers are very capable of figuring out different ways to do things, being more efficient. So what I try to do is I try to encourage people to be that improvement vehicle for yourself, because they're the, they're the ones that are closest to the work, and they're the ones that are going to be able to know. Um, how to navigate and do things better. Yeah, so presumably, um, if that manager uh, 
who played such an important role in your learning process there, if that manager had known, oh, uh, here's the standard operating procedure for doing this in three hours, here's a checklist, my guess is that uh, he wouldn't have sent you to reinvent the wheel. And likewise, if you have a, a repeatable solution that you could offer to one of your direct reports, uh, you wouldn't have them go reinvent the wheel, I, I, I'm assuming. But if it's out of your area of expertise and they are uh, uh, subject matter experts who are developing greater subject matter expertise, uh, then uh, giving them the mission of, hey, go figure this out. You know, sometimes people get frustrated about, well, go figure this out. It, but, but as long as you've got uh, the time frame, as long as you've got the, the, the buffer time to go do that, uh, the learning experience will be better and very likely the solution that they develop will be better. Yes, absolutely. One of the things that in these large organizations that have all of these different departments that uh, work together to produce an end product, uh, for instance, you know, supply chain. Supply chain is one of those organizations that in, a, in the technical world, nobody really fully understands how they operate. I, we, have, we have electronics parts that we send out, we get ordered, and um, I, get, I get a phone call one day and somebody tells me, hey, where are my parts? Well, I don't know, where are they supposed to be? And well, they're supposed to be on my desk. I need them and I need them pretty quickly. So in, in the course of figuring out how supply chain works, you have to be a good uh, questioner of, of process, but also it, it's knowing the right person to talk to. So in this situation, um, I had to make a phone call and it was to the uh, incoming in inspector. The incoming inspector found a problem with these parts and wrote a report on it and said, okay, we have a problem with these parts. Um, I'm going to set this over here and move on because he's got more work to do. That triggered a different process to where the supply chain engineers needed to go and check this and fix the situation. And sometimes it just gets missed. What happened, it ended up being um, a series of different phone calls and said, hey, there's this thing sitting on here and it's, it looks like it's your task. Are you aware of it? Oh, no, I'm sorry. Well, I'll get right on it. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. And then in the course of figuring that out, you learn about how those processes actually operate. And then you're better at it next time to be able to say, oh, I know what's happening here. I know what the situation calls for. And you, you just get better and more proficient at these things um, as you work through each individual problem. Yeah, because if your expertise is in software and now in, um, in, in, in mission assurance and you're, you've got a team there and, you know, they're doing uh, uh, reliability engineering on the parts and, you know, you, you can't also uh, master uh, every detail of the supply chain process, but after you've gone through it, you realize, oh, when those things come in the loading dock, what happens is somebody unpacks the box, then there is an intake uh, quality assurance uh, inspector, and they, they check the paperwork against the part. They check that against their, uh, the paperwork they have to document themselves. And, and uh, so you start to learn, oh, you know, either there is or there isn't uh, a, a button in that process where they let the person on the receiving end know. And if there's not, then you just uh, uh, found a piece of their process that needs to get improved, which is, hey, when you, when you find out you got a, uh, a problem, 
uh, with an incoming uh, uh, part, uh, you got to let the end user know. Yeah, and those kinds of things, when you have those um, independent organizations that perform certain pieces of work that then are dependent on other other organizations, the the communication and the collaboration across those departments um, is is very difficult to manage. I know the uh, the old term, the stovepipe, is is well in practice in, in all organizations, and it it is a hard problem. But as long as you're empowering your people in order to say, you know, hey, what what can you do that's better here? Is there something that we can do um, that is better that will help improve things? As long as as a company or as, or as an organization, you're allowing your people to think about those things. And in order to bring those situations up, they may not have the authority or the power to be able to make those changes. But as you bubble those up as a company and as you look for ways to be uh, more effective and more productive, those changes happen eventually because it's not only our team that's dealing with these situations. Everybody's dealing with the same situations and everybody may be dealing with the same inefficiency, maybe not to the level that you uh, may notice, but it's still an inefficiency and it's always uh, good to be able to um, help your people notice those and uh, help the organization improve those so that in the long term, you're actually doing better as a company. Yeah, I mean, what you're pointing out really is in stovepiping or what some people call siloing in organizations where functions are isolated from one another and they uh, operate in their own um, uh, way and they also often have there's a, a lack of transparency with other functions about exactly what they do and how they do it and in many ways that's what the matrix structure is meant to solve uh what the matrix yeah. structure is meant to create a lot more sideways and diagonal communication much further down the chain of command so there's better information sharing better decision making uh better resource sharing and uh and and faster execution I wonder what you think about this. One of the solutions that we've identified is a very simple one, which is often, say, in your supply chain organization, they have a process. They have a standard operating procedure. They have repeatable solutions. Not only that, they have job aids. They have checklists. You know, sometimes those checklists become wallpaper to the people who use them all day, every day. Uh, but mm -hmm. they can also be very useful tools to help their collaboration partners and other teams understand what they do and how they do it. As soon as you have the supply chain incoming inspector checklist and a, a process flow chart, all of a sudden uh, you now understand exactly what they do. So that tool that they use to guide them can also become a tool for much greater transparency with you, their collaboration partner. The good thing about uh, large companies is they're very thorough about their documentation, and they they don't they don't get to be large companies without it. Sure, there's there's more inefficiencies somewhere in the organization, but it's always able to be improved. And when you're talking about standard operating procedures, what I try to do is in my organization, I fully understand standard operating procedures up, down, sideways. But when it comes to other organizations. Yes, the supply chain has their own standard operating procedures, and it's better to understand those from my position so that I can help my team better navigate what they do as, a, as an organization. And sometimes the best way to do that is, yeah, just go peek at their documentation. 
look at what their processes are and see where in the course of their uh, standard day can efficiencies be gained, not only by suggesting that um, they can make improvements, but where my team could could look into that and go, oh, on our side, we can probably peek into this to make sure we're getting um, the information that we need. One of the things that I have to do as a, a mission insurance manager, the budget under the, the receiving inspection comes under my organization. Uh, these are the people that work on the dock and they have you know thousands of things that come in the door every day. And for each one of those, there's, uh, there's a program and there's a, a particular charge number. And what I do is I have to manage my budget. And one of the things that happens is there could be a high, high budget or a low budget, but what I do is I understand how they work so that I can manage that dollar amount under uh, my organization. And I can go and talk to the, um, the lead of supply chain or the lead of the uh, inspection engineers to make sure that they have the right charge number and the problems we can solve it as quickly as possible. Uh, and, and that's uh, as you're navigating your way through uh, every day. Uh, and supply chain is just one example of an organization uh, with which you have to cooperate and communicate and collaborate. You know, there's on the other side is finance and right over here is HR and over here is uh, every uh, everyone else, right? <laughs> Not yes. to mention uh, the engineers and the production, and right. It's uh, uh, so um, that's the the amazing thing about a large, complex organization like 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 the one in which you operate. That's why uh, they're able to send stuff into space. <laughs> yeah, very complicated, uh, very long term, and we're we're very precise too. Uh, the one of the things that I found out going from. Um, software to hardware, space flight hardware in general, everything is very precise and it has to be because you need to know that what you're sending up into space is going to perform the function it needs to, it's going to last as long as it needs to, and it needs to just be able to survive in all of those elements in space out there that it's going to be exposed to. So the, the work involved up front in these programs was, was very eye-opening to me. And uh, that was one of the cool things about um, switching over from being the receiver of this data and the product of the satellites to switching into this is how this stuff is built and this is how we get it up in the air. That, that's been a really cool shift in my career lately. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating. And of course, uh, I have this image of some guy getting stuck on Mars with uh, with with uh, uh, equipment that's not reliable or a mission that's not fully assured. And then, you know, then where is he going to be? He's going to be stuck on Mars. So one thing I want to go back to, because I think it's another uh, really um, uh, powerful toolkit, uh, and you referenced it when you talked about the six degrees of communication, um, what I'm going to call from now on the fifth and sixth dimensions, and uh, that is back and forth. Because, uh, you know, I always say up, down, sideways, and diagonal, right? And uh, so, but back and forth, there's a tradition and a practice in most military organizations now that was first developed by the United States Army called the After Action Review. Uh, yeah. And it's formalizing, looking backwards, learning the lessons from what you've done and bringing those lessons forward. And I'm guessing in your uh, projects, you, you maybe do act. Yes. Um, for every program, what uh, we have is called a lessons learned exercise. 
for every major program as a program, you come together and you take all of those lessons down, you, you go back through and you review what went wrong, what went right, and what can we do better. And you make that a priority on the next program to be able to go and say, okay, we experienced this before. We're not going to make the same mistake again, and we're, we're going to avoid this piece. You'll always have different situations that happen up in the front, but the goal here is to make sure that you learn enough from past mistakes to not repeat those. And I take that down to a team level to be able to make that um, for you know month-to-month conversations or even just week-to-week conversations because you always have learning opportunities on um, your day-to-day work, whether it's talking with your team or giving praise or coaching on a, you know you know simple email practices. Those are some things that you can do very well. And as, as, as a team, when you're looking backwards, it's always good to be able to point out the things that everybody does really well publicly. I like doing that publicly so that everybody gets the same message. I only like to point out negative or do some of the coaching privately because that gives the, um, the opportunity for the one-on-one conversation. And you try to do it in such a way that it is you know, non-combative and non-accusatory. And you're always couching it as, hey, there's a learning opportunity here. Let's let's make things better. And you you go about it so that you frame it as we're going to make your performance better so that we can make the team's performance better so that everybody has um, this great product at the end. Yeah. And it's, you know, instead of finger pointing and blaming and complaining, it becomes continuous improvement it's not bad news it's hey good news we're going to keep getting better together i was i was on a uh, doing a seminar yesterday with a client and we were talking about the after action review and uh, some of the people were were talking about that sometimes it can be hard to make the after action review uh, real, authentic, and meaningful going forward that sometimes people feel like, oh, well, we're just looking back and, you know, then we tuck it away. And, and the next time we do a project that's sufficiently similar to learn from that, uh, we don't always remember to actualize uh, what we learned. And uh, so one of the things I was talking to them about is, you know, authenticity in this process. And, you know, you've got to really mean it and you've got to really make the most of it and you've got to really uh, try to make it an engine of continuous improvement. One of the exercises that I loved was um, it's called an affinity exercise and then you make the participants part of the overall solution. And the way that it happens is um, let's say you get a a team of software engineers. I used to do this back when uh, I was a scrum master for uh, development teams. This was fun. You you get the engineers in the room, and engineers are you know naturally shy people, so they don't necessarily like to talk. So what you do is you give everybody a sticky pad and a Sharpie marker, and you just tell them to write. And it's a brainstorming exercise for about 10 minutes. And you say, in, this, in the past delivery, did we have things that were very well done? What could we do better? And what didn't work? And you just challenge them to say, okay, just go ahead and write anything off the top of your head, anything that you experienced. And the goal is to get, you know, 10 to 20 sticky notes done. And then you throw everything up on a whiteboard. You put them all on a whiteboard and everybody gets to look at it and review and go, oh, yeah, yeah, we did that. Oh, yeah. Oh, that was not very good. Okay. I experienced that too. So what you do there is you get it out of their heads, but it's, it's anonymous. And that really helps out. 
The next step is everybody gets a chance to vote and organize what are the big major themes. The best part about that is everybody is their own judge and they know that they're not just judging their own pieces, but they're judging everybody else's pieces on the effectiveness of what they're seeing. In the end, what you get is a very good collaborative view of here's the things that we did very well. It may be good communication, good productivity, good effectiveness. Here are the things that we can do better, better look at metrics, uh, better measuring technique. And here's the things that didn't work out very well. Management, you know, wrote us and just gave us way too much work in not enough time. Better planning needs to be done. So those are the kind of things that really help out organizations, but there's all kinds of different techniques to be able to do that. The affinity exercise is one of my favorites in order to be able to use because it's more effective. Yes. Yeah, so uh, it's a, a way of doing an after action review that, uh, if I understand correctly, builds in uh, an element of anonymity in the first part, builds in an actual process, a shared cognitive experience of aligning uh, so that uh, they're, they're doing the alignment together and reaching a shared consensus, which I'm, I'm guessing is why it's called an affinity exercise. Yep. And, and, and then you still walk away with concrete next steps. Uh, I think that's, that's fantastic. And, um, uh, that's a great one. Uh, and, a, and a good takeaway for listeners. Uh, if you're running a project, do that. If you're not running a project, make sure the project leader listens to this podcast. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> so as, as our time is, is winding down, Bernard, let me ask you if, if, if you're, um, you know, if you've got an elevator uh, ride to give advice to someone, if someone's saying, wow, you know, how do I get to be you? How does somebody get to be like you? First of all, it's a lot of hard work and it's continually improving your skills, continually improving your ability to perform. But it also takes a very good foundation. Now, my foundation was in computer science and electrical engineering. A technical background you can do so much with with in your career. You can go work for just about anybody out there. Um, you can even work for yourself if you want to. But you have to have a good foundation. And a technical foundation is always worthwhile to pursue. Finance is always a worthwhile to pursue because every company out there deals with money. But that good foundation is is a very, very good start. From there, it's just learning the work, learning how to work, be productive keep improving your skills, always try to be um, on top of the current technology. If you're in technology, you know, keep up with trends in the industry, you know, network to be able to find uh, the same like people within your group and even within your company, but also outside of your organization, because you never know what's going to happen. But a lot of hard work, a lot of continuous improvement, and you know, overall try to have fun. The, the hardest part to do when, when you're working is to have fun. And the thing that I always like to tell people is make sure that you're utilizing your strengths more than your weaknesses. Because in every position that I've had, I've always tried to make sure that my strengths were where a majority of my work was happening. And if you don't know what those are, go figure it out. A lot of good tools out there to figure that. Um, Strength Finder 2.0, Myers-Briggs, all of the um, good personal um, study type organizations always have that. Know that, know where your strengths are, apply those strengths, and you'll be better performing. The, the one um, interesting thing that I had in my career where 
you you go into a position without um, knowing what the position is. And it was one of those where it was, um, you didn't know it at the time, but I was set up for failure and I didn't know it. I didn't understand it because I didn't do my homework up front. I didn't realize what the work was. Um, I was missing some key skills at the time. And it was one of those that I, I tried to do my best, but it, the knowledge and the skills just weren't there. I was not working within my strengths. Um, I had a couple of key gaps in, in knowledge and it was a, a very good learning experience. So those things will happen in a career, but you always keep learning, always keep adapting and try and produce the highest quality work that you can. So uh, if, if you find yourself in over your head or in the wrong position, uh, you got to you got to make your way out of that situation, huh? Yeah, there's there's two ways to do that. One way is uh, get out immediately because you're not doing yourself any good. Uh, you're not doing your team any good and you're not doing your boss any good. That's in a severe case. Uh, the other way is, you know, ask for help. Organizations are always able to have the help. You may not get um, the exact help at the exact time that you need it. But as long as you're acknowledging that you have a weakness that you need to improve on, uh, people are very, very um, well adapted to be able to give you the expertise or at least point you in the right direction. So that's one of the things that is is always hard for people to do is admit that you need the help and then go out and ask for it. Those are excellent pieces of advice. Bernard George, thank you for being a guest on The Indispensables. Thank you very much. Had a great time. In our next episode, I'll talk with Mala Subramaniam, who's an executive coach and the author of Beyond Wins. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about GoToism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.